This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. Hey, I'm your host, Enrico Teotti, and on this episode, we will talk with Ryan Latta about his journey becoming a retrospective facilitator. Ryan has been building software and teams for nearly 10 years now. He currently works as an Agile coach and Scrum Master. I asked Ryan how did he start facilitating retrospectives. So my, my background is actually as a software developer. I've been doing that for nearly 10 years now, I guess. And about halfway through that time, I wound up working with a really great Scrum Master. And originally, we started off doing the standard plus minus delta, three column kind of retrospective. You went through the form, but not much changed. And then he went through some training. And suddenly, our retrospectives like kind of came to life. I experienced that as being a, a team member. And then the job after that kind of went back to that same three column format. And I saw kind of nothing happening. And it kind of began clicking that these retrospectives had such untapped potential everywhere I'd been. And uh, I began to shift how retrospectives work there, even though I was still a developer. And then the, finally, the job after that, I became a scrum master for a team and began facilitating retrospectives 100% of the time with a whole lot of focus and intent. And that would probably be, I guess, about four years ago is when that actually happened. So it was it was that spark of seeing, seeing my scrum master learn how to facilitate really quite meaningful retrospectives as like a, I know what's possible. Before my scrum master did this training, he would do the three column things that went well, things that didn't. What do you want to change? We would fill it full of stickies, dot vote on the thing we would want to pursue, and then come up with an action item. The standard retrospective that so many people are used to, that's what he did. And not much was changing. I mean, you, you knew that every day. And then he went through this training and he came back. And I remember two, well, I guess I remember three activities that he brought back and just completely changed the format of our retrospectives. And he never really did the three column one again. So one one of them he did was uh, an activity that I now, uh, or I mean, afterwards I learned is like to like, which is the equivalent of playing the games apples to apples, which if that's not familiar, it would be, you have a set of cards that would be things like various, I think in the way we would do it, various kind of reactions or emotions that you would have. And then a whole bunch of other, we would all write down like events or occurrences or our own thoughts or opinions and someone would play a card that emotion card would come up and then we would all secretly put one of these events or emotions or whatever that we felt and then someone would randomly pick and it was just this crazy weird experience that was radically different and it and it kind of led to us digging a lot deeper than the three column format we were used to he also did like fish boning he also did journey lines he just began doing all these other activities that led us to completely different places than the the standard three column one it was and that's that was kind of that holy crap there's a whole lot more to this than everything i'd ever seen i think any team that's been a part of a retrospective where they find that that sort of jewel or that gem or that treasure that's that's something they don't forget very easily because it generally leads to a memorable improvement, something that was meaningful. And that stands apart from what so many other people experience. And I experienced it, you've experienced it, and it's it's worth 
it's worth the uh the effort and focus of upping our game to figure out how to do that i guess regularly ryan saw a radical change in retrospectives after changing their format i asked him how different were the outcomes the teams that that are i would say most common the most common like three column format kind of scratching the surface kind of things they'll come up with i would say what i'm used to seeing is three to five action items that are i mean they actually look pretty similar to even ones that that my retrospectives may generate but there's a there's a subtle difference in there which is the journey that they got to that same action item whether it's something like find out why our automated tests are failing and fix them or involve the product owner sooner when we start a story so there's no surprises or begin extending our CI pipeline so that we're not dealing with instability in the QA environments, whatever it is. Even if they look the same there, the journey they got there through the retrospective has so much more meaning to the team that what I would say is the the sort of proof in the pudding is that the teams don't need to know that the action item ever existed, that the journey they took of looking at data and finding meaning in it and then saying, well, what do we want to do about this? Now that we now that we have this insight, what do we want to do about it? Once they've arrived at that sort of like, we're going to fix CI, we're going to fix our tests, we're going to talk to the product owner, it just happens. I don't have to put it in a backlog. I don't have to say, how about that retrospective item? I don't have to put it on a wall. It just happens. And the teams are happy about it. They celebrate that it was fixed. It just naturally works. This is in contrast to the normal sort of like humdrum retrospectives where the retrospective items are collected and they they go into a vacuum where they have to be put into a backlog where they have to be nagged during daily scrum or something like that. And then at the end, if they did the work, it's sort of like, well, what did you get out of it? Well, maybe nothing. It was more work. And that's that to me is the main difference that I I'd say I've experienced both on on either side. It's that that meaning that's behind it is the catalyst of real change, not so much what the action item was. What is an example of a breakthrough you experienced as a retrospective facilitator? So I was with this company. It's like I measured time by retrospectives there. And so I was with them for seven retrospectives. And I got the uh, kind of enjoyment of being there and being able to apply everything I've learned over the years and practiced. And like, this was a good moment for me to just to go right back into it. And every single retrospective, the team came up with some actions. Sometimes they were pretty radical and sometimes they were very obvious, but I never had to follow up with them. And I remember at the end, my seventh retrospective with them, after I knew I was leaving the company and after they knew I was leaving them, we had a retrospective on retrospectives. And I asked them, so what's your take on retrospectives now? I've been with you for seven of these things. What do you t- what's your take? And they said, you know, before I joined, that it was basically a time set aside each week where they would go in and complain and nothing would get done. And I said, well, what's happening now? And they said, things are so much better. And I was like, well, what got better? Like, enumerate the things that have changed. And the, t- the team could remember every single improvement they had made over five months. It was just in every one of them. It was obvious to them that it happened. And some of it was simple. Like the very first retrospective I led with them, they were honing in on their development process and they realized they had a they had a problem with their code reviews where someone would ask for a code review and days would go by before someone would do it and it would slow everyone down. So they talked a bit about that and they, they came up with a simple, you know, you get 24 hours and if you don't, then you schedule a meeting. 
like you put it on their calendar to do it. And that's that was their solution. And it was easily accepted. No follow-up, no nagging. It just started happening. And it made an improvement. And they could remember all of these happening for them over the past five months that I'd been with them. And then the last retrospective where we were talking about it, we actually said, so what is it that happens in your retrospectives that lead you to actually making a change? How does that actually happen? Because you've been doing this for years, but it's only in the past five months changes happened. What does that actually look like? What does it take? And we did this thing and they we ran out of time. You know, I scheduled an hour and they were like, let's keep going. So we did it for, we, we did this for like two, two and a half hours. And they created a set of rules that they wished to follow going forward that they thought would establish every retrospective going forward that would lead to a change that was worthwhile to them. And they were excited about it. They never wanted to go back to the get in a room and complain. Teams sometimes feel like if it's not a big change, then it's not worthwhile. And my experience is the opposite tends to be true. That taking those small changes, even if they seem absurd, is what leads to kind of like when you look back after six months, how radically different things are. But it's because they took many small steps. They didn't boil the ocean one day. They made little changes like, let's fix our stand-up timing. Let's fix our code review. Let's do these little things. But it adds up. To me, the, the hinge point that happens in our, the retrospective, you know, if you're aware and follow the sort of like five-step format that's in the Agile Retrospectives book by Esther Derby and Diana Larson, then you've got your generate insights step. And that's that to me is the hinge point of the retrospective. That's the part that keeps me up at night. That's the part where teams create meaning and say, oh, I get it. I see what this is about. And that's what turns into a an action item that's relevant and meaningful to them. And if that step doesn't go right, then I know that whatever comes out of our retrospective is likely going to be a miss. And it it freaks me out, but like that's that to me is the hinge point in my retrospectives. What would you suggest to a new facilitator trying to generate insights? I mean, I have to be honest, like I've I still, to this day, don't feel like I have a great handle on that one particular step of the retrospective. And that could be because I build it up so much in my mind. I think, in general, what I would say is that for many people that lead retrospectives, there's probably far too much of a hurry to get to an action item. And certainly, certainly a retrospective that does not result in any kind of an, an action or a follow-on follow thing that you need to do isn't going to be great. It's going to be dissatisfying for people. But there tends to be a skip over that step or shortcut it and get straight to coming up with your action items. And I think the first thing I would recommend to anyone facilitating is be intentional about creating time for the team to create meaning out of everything they've been talking about. Whether it's you're just doing a debrief, whether you're doing a structured activity, give time to it at the cost of maybe not having quite as much time for your action item generation. Because if they get a real insight, the action item comes very quick. And just one action item is better than three that no one would do. So I tend to try to say, get as much time in that one, that one area of generating insights as you can first. Don't be in a hurry. And then once you have that time, the things I look for are quality of discussion that's happening. I'm looking for, at the beginning, a lot of conversation around the lines like, no, that's not right. I see this. Or no, what's happening is actually this. And these kind of like really divergent opinions about what they've been seeing. So the way I would maybe describe divergent ideas is when there's many different thoughts or opinions. No consensus, it's just casting the net very wide. Brainstorming is a good example of divergence. It's just anything and everything. And then the act of converging is distilling that down 
getting rid of things that are superfluous or not relevant and creating more and more meaning to the things that remain until we're down to the select few we actually want to invest more in. I'll ask some guiding questions like, okay, so you all saw this. Why do you think that you've come up with something different? Like, how did you all go through the same steps, but experience something different? Like what's happening there? And watch their conversation shift and move and try to converge back down to a few fewer set of possibilities that might have a underlying meaning behind it. And then see if they think that that's plausible. I don't need them to agree that it's real but I need them to think it's plausible. One thing I do in all my retrospectives is I don't ask for a perfect or good or definite. I ask for likely, reasonable, possible instead. And that sort of makes it seem easy to approach ideas that we may not be certain about to experiment with change. So if we have a plausible insight behind everything, okay, what do you want to do about that? How might you make it a, how might you take a step that would lead to an improvement? Not that it will improve, but what might you do? And we go that way. So that's that's sort of how I kind of approach it is by watching the conversation after I give it time. How does Ryan focus the group on one topic during a retrospective? This is where things get interesting, right? And this is where I'm going to expose my sort of like lack of comfort with this area. Broadly, like I think what most of us have been taught to do is to theme and group from that moment, right? So they have their 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 columns or their events or their timeline, they have all this this uh, unconnected information. And then the standard approach would be to group and theme, bundle them up, and that's sort of creating consolidated meaning. And I think that's valuable, but I don't think it's enough. And so I will often ask them to do it or prioritize or, or sometimes do a set of activities that'll be things like where they have to, because that's a divergent moment, right? We've got everything out there and now we need to bring it back down to meaning. So I've even had them do like tournament level brackets where they've come up with all this information and they, they, they choose what they think is the most important thing for us to dig into. And then they'll successively do bracket voting down or anything else. But the main idea is they have all that data. We want to converge down. And honestly, grouping and theming is probably the thing I rely on the most. Like, okay, what's similar, what's not. And I'll actually ask them for alternatives. Like, okay, so you all think that's a group. Cool. Could this item belong to any other group? Is there anything that would make us think that could be true? And invite that sort of like, oh, wait, yeah, no, I have actually seen this when this other moment happened. And that kind of connects dots further too. But most of the time I will rely on debriefing questions. Just all this is up here. What, what do you see? You know, give it some time, let them begin talking. Okay, so what about this stands out to you? Or what about this was challenging? What up here do you completely disagree with or what about this what did we miss putting up here right and and go through these kinds of questions kind of creating meaning into it leading to the sort of the, the final question that i would use which is so what does that actually mean what meaning do you have from any of this what would you take away from it and see what they say and and generally when i get to that stage if it goes well the group is willing like someone will say something and the group will be like yeah, I agree with that. And there it is. That's the nugget. That's the insight. And there may be two or three of those things. And if we need to choose, I'll have them dot vote. But generally, those those three distilled or however many few distilled insights is fine. They can take those three and create some action items on it. And I'll, I'll ask them to pick the most relevant one. It's okay. But there's the main thing is that they created meaning, not how much of it that was there. 
I asked Ryan to tell us about a hard retrospective he facilitated. I became a Scrum Master and facilitated for the first time. So the worst retrospectives I, I ever ran in my life were that were those first few, which isn't surprising, right? Those were my first ones, so they're going to probably be the worst. But what happened was, this is also about the same time I, I discovered the Agile Retrospectives book and got really serious about this stuff. So I had begun to plan all of the retrospectives very diligently, um, following the form laid out in the book, you know, set the stage, gather data, generate insights, deciding what to do and close. And I, even in that sort of like, I don't know what I'm doing phase, I knew the group I was with was having, they were not working well together. And that's kind of a understatement. They actively at times seemed to dislike one another. And so me being even barely aware of that decided to incorporate the mad sad glad exercise into my retrospective because i understood it was an emotional that one was was keying off some you know emotional data and so i thought let's just let's just get this out i had no idea what i had just signed up for by choosing that activity we go through this activity and the discussion that happened the people were dropping f-bombs at one another people were crying i mean this was this was absolutely not okay and i did it like i i planned this retrospective i facilitated it i i walked them into this and it was in that moment where they were you know one developer was in tears the others had said like f you and all this stuff i realized i have no idea what i'm doing and how i'm going to get out of this and <laughs> So, you know, this, that's, that's, there was a moment where all that was happening, you know, they'd gotten kind of all that stuff out and I was at a loss. I didn't really know what to do. So kind of in a panic, I asked them if they, even after all that hurt, if they believed that everyone was working with good intentions, if everyone was doing the best job they could. And everyone was like, yes, we do believe that. I said, okay. So then is it is it reasonable at this point to think that all this hurt, it wasn't because we wanted to hurt one another. It was just thing, things didn't go well with our best intentions. Things didn't go well with us doing our best. Something didn't work out. Like, yeah, we agree with that too. And I said, okay. So the big ask is, are we willing to apologize for hurting one another? I'm not asking you to accept the apology, but could we apologize for any hurt we caused one another? And I don't know what's going to happen. And everyone's like, yeah, we'll definitely apologize. And they apologized to one another. Things got significantly better for a few months after that. But I was in way over my head in that one. And I didn't know what to do when it went the way it did. But at the same time, I have to take responsibility because I planned that retrospective to be emotional. I just didn't know what the implications were. And so that gave me a very, very early kind of wake-up call as to the role of facilitation and what it takes to be a good facilitator in one of these meetings. I didn't know necessarily what it meant at that time or like what to do about it, but I had immediately under my belt uh, an experience I never wanted anyone to go through again, including myself. I asked Ryan if he went back to that retro with his current knowledge what advice would he have for himself? 
so I'm, I'm, I'm peering into my reflection in my glass of whiskey as I ponder this, but I think honestly, the, if I had to go back, I would, I would tell myself that, um, one, one thing that I think a facilitator has to do is know, know what's walking into the room. They, they can't be surprised by the people or the facilities or the room structure. They can, none of that could be a surprise to a facilitator. They have to know if they're going to facilitate appropriately. Um, and I would tell myself to pay more attention to what's about to walk into that room and know that there may be a bomb that I hadn't been preparing for or that I was explicitly lighting on fire. I know I wasn't aware, like I hadn't talked to some of these people enough to know kind of this, these deep seated issues to know what was about to walk into the room. And I think that's what I would tell myself is spend more time with them before you really try to go in and meddle with this stuff, know these people. Ryan says preparation is key for good retrospective facilitation. I asked him how did he improve his preparation? Like when I started, I was all about choosing the activities and making sure the activities made sense together. I didn't pay attention to the me part of that, like what, what I had to be in the room to facilitate correctly. And so it was sort of this like all about the activities, then all about me, then back to some like focusing on activities and it kind of has been bouncing around. But I think the main thing that I like I do now and I, people are surprised by it even even after, you know, the four or five years I've been doing this and all that, I, I, I tell people, you know, when I'm when I'm planning a, a retrospective for a team, they that team, no matter how many retrospectives I run, is worth my consideration and it's worth me thinking about what's appropriate for them this time based on everything i've seen based on everything they've said what the right retrospective for this team right now and there are times when i'll it's a heartbeat retrospective but i will still spend maybe an hour or two really thinking about what's the right way for this retrospective to be who do i need to be what words would i use how will i stand every detail is something that i would consider because to me, the potential for this team far outweighs my laziness. Um, and that's true to this day. Even if I've, I've dialed into a format that the team really clicks with, I will still give it the time to make sure that it's the right thing for them at that moment. And that's everything about me, what's in my head, what I'm about to say, down to how I'm going to introduce each activity, the materials, every, every variable I try to plan and account and walk for. Not to say that I need to control it to that level, but that's me being prepared. I'm kind of <laughs> sort of a, maybe an aggressive way of saying it is I'm, I'm visualizing the battle I'm about to walk into. I can't control it when I go in, but my, my head is ready for it. Ryan and I reflected on how retrospective facilitation is a bit like sailing a boat. And the boat metaphor is great, right? Because I think that's, that's more appropriate because the boat's the thing you control, but you can't control the, the weather that's going to push you in the direction it's going to. You still have to respond to it. You still have to react. You still have to change based on it. But you have the structure and the tools to do it. And that's the key to the preparation. Not so much that, you know, they're going to behave the way I want. It's, it's that I'm ready to, to create the right retrospective for them. 
I asked Ryan what suggestion he has for a facilitator that holds a manager role. It gets tricky right out of the gate, right? So retrospectives need to be probably one of the most safe spaces for a team so they can say what they want and explore freely. So creating the the kind of environment where they can have that is probably going to be paramount for anyone that recognizes that they're in a position of power over the team in some regard. Product owners tend to, to fit that bill. Managers, by definition, do. So I would advocate for people who are going to do that. I would recommend to them thinking about how they are going to begin their retrospective, not the activities, but how are they going to begin it in a way that creates that environment. So um, some things that exist that can be of benefit, provided they, they do their sort of, you know, preparing to go sailing kind of piece to it is a look at the prime directive that exists for the retrospectives and burn it into their heart, so to speak, and then bring it to the retrospective room, like say it. This is this is going to be a part of our retrospective. This is the prime directive. Is this something that we are okay with? And then safety check. And the reason why this is, the, and that's the line I would draw for people in this kind of situation you outlined, like that up till that moment, that's the moment to me where they have to spend all of their time and effort because the safety check, the prime directive can establish the sort of like, okay, we believe positive intent. Things are the way they are because... That's just how they're going to be, and we're going to explore things, right? It's it's setting up that sort of positive intent, blameless scenario. And then the safety check helps us confirm that we're ready to begin the retrospective in a way that allows us to fully explore his ideas without fear of what people will say or think about us, which is absolutely a thing that people are concerned about when someone's in power over them. And the reason why I would say those two things are the things to spend the time on are the safety check is probably the a huge pet peeve of mine when I watch retrospectives being facilitated. Because in the safety check, we want to say, okay, on a scale of one to five, one being I absolutely don't feel like I can participate uh, openly or honestly, and five being I'm ready to explore everything fully and openly. And you, you have them do this anonymously, like writing down numbers on a card and putting them in a bag so no one can see them and do all that. Everything's typically like three, fours, fives. That's generally support. So we can say, cool. And we can even add on to it and say, you know, what would be even better? What would be a three to a four or four to a five? You can do that too. But when you see the ones or twos, that's when someone has, has taken some amount of courage to say that they are no longer comfortable. And what I see happen time and time again is the person facilitating the retrospective ignore that brush it aside or say okay so there's a one or a two maybe they can talk afterwards let's keep going right someone said they cannot move forward and then the facilitator said we're doing it anyway that to me is that's the moment that one of these people like a manager or a product owner can completely change how retrospectives run for their teams knowing that safety could be jeopardized if they can facilitate the safety check and in a healthy way navigate the one and two scenario then i would say great they have a safe environment for them to explore ideas they also have the classic oh everything's outside of our control problem they've got a manager they've got a product owner someone with hooks into the greater organization to go fix things awesome for that but that'd be where I'd say I don't care what activities you want until you can until you can do those two things. At the start of a retrospective, during set the stage, 
You can run activities to anonymously collect how safe or unsafe people feel. Ryan describes how he handles a retrospective with a room full of people feeling unsafe. To me, is terrifying. To this day, it, it terrifies me. Thankfully, it rarely happens to me. The, here's, the, here's the trick with it. So to me, it's, I, I take the position that someone has, has they've taken the courage to, to throw that I'm not ready. And I assume they don't have any more to give. I assume that was their last gasp. It doesn't really set me up to succeed, but that's the position I take. So then my retrospective is dead. It's gone. And the question now becomes, is there a way for us to allow this person to say what they need in a way that's okay for them, that we can respect and respond to and continue the retrospective, which is a huge ask, or we bail and we just cancel it. I've had to cancel retrospectives for other reasons, like because a manager that I knew the team was no longer safe with walked into the room. I've had to cancel them for those reasons. But the ones and twos, what I say typically will happen for me is the one or two comes out and then I basically go into a fully anonymous mode of facilitation where I will basically ask the question. And again, I have everyone work anonymously from this point forward, which is I'll ask the question like, okay, so let's everyone put ourselves in the position that we feel like we cannot contribute to this retrospective without feeling like it, it's going to come back to us or whatever it is. What do you think has to change for that to be different? What is it? And I have them brainstorm ideas and I collect them anonymously and I'll put them all up. And I'll do it. That's, that's how I'll begin the retrospective. It's on that. It's what's killing our safety. But I do it absolutely anonymously from that point forward. So that, that even includes things like dot voting. It's done anonymously. So everything they put up, I'll put a number by it and I'll have them. What, what numbers are you voting on? And put the stickies in and I'll do it that way. So no one ever sees how anyone is ever voting or anything else. And at the end, I'll ask the questions like, okay, so if, if we could make this change here and now, would, do we think that we would be able to continue with a retrospective and then we'll do another like kind of anonymous vote? And if I can get to that yes there and I can make the change, then we can continue. If we can't, I kill it and then I consider it an impediment to the team and I'll begin to deal with it differently. But it's a, for me, it's like a completely different, like the retrospective is over at that moment and now I have to take this other branch. What does Ryan think about rotating retrospective facilitators? Ideally, I don't care who does these things, just like I don't care who writes code on a team. If you want to put someone who's never written code before in front of a keyboard, go ahead. So I think, yes, you can rotate facilitators, but that's usually done because people don't acknowledge that facilitation is a skill and retrospectives are a burden. I try to demonstrate the alternative that retrospectives are it's actually worth the time and the investment. And once that happens, the conversation around rotating facilitators never happens. The question around, can we shorten this, goes away. And that's usually the symptom I see it as. But you know, if I have a really strong team and they're interested in it, then and they want to try it, I'll rotate them in and I'll pair with them or mentor them and get them into the mix. Like that's fine. It's not, it's not that. I, because I have more experience, always have to do it. It's if you've if you've got the the desire and the passion and you want to learn, then we'll figure out how to make it happen. But the symptom of it being a a, a burden on the team that's shortening retrospectives and rotating facilitators, I generally won't try to to endorse that 
because it, it's just kind of a, someone's going to have to pay the price and everyone does in that case to me. Having managers and stakeholders attend the team retrospective can be a hot topic. How does Ryan handle that? Team has to give permission to do so first. I, stakeholders have asked, managers have asked, I think everywhere I've ever been, they've wanted to see retrospectives. And I make my position completely clear that that is a time and space for the team to explore ideas openly and freely. And if they are comfortable with you in the room, I will let you know. And otherwise, if you try to show up, I will cancel the retrospective and do it in secret. Like, that's that's my conversation with people. And I'd say... After this sort of like first contact kind of with teams and after we establish kind of healthy retrospectives and we establish some of that stuff, I, I kind of think of the team as having gone through a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, some training and they, they have the sort of resilience and the strength as a team to accept that kind of volatility in and eventually they will allow them in because there is benefit because they can speak to the issues outside of their team impeding them and they know they can deal with it. So I always give them the option, but until they say yes, um, that door is closed. I asked Ryan, what is the unique skill set or superpower that makes him a successful facilitator? I kind of was lucky in a number of experiences that I had that were profound in the teams that I worked with and the I won't say all the retrospectives, like I certainly highlighted the the one scrum master I had. Um, but I knew I knew the potential existed. I had seen tastes and glimmers of it. And to me, that was always enough to sustain me in reinventing and changing any and all aspects of how I thought and acted about these things to get closer to it. And I still feel completely mediocre about it, but uh, when I when I compare myself probably unjustly against other things that I see, I know I've come worlds, but that's kind of it. It's it's I've been every now and then I'm I'm lucky enough to have someone that I've worked with in retrospectives or coached, and they'll say they'll say something to me that I don't know how to deal with to this day, which is uh, you know they'll say working with you is the best experience of my career, and I'll I have no idea what to do with that. But it tells me that the potential's there, right? That all this stuff can work and be more than about our job. And that's a that's a very nourishing piece of feedback that keeps me going. And I've since then developed all kinds of weird tools and kind of coaching questions in my head. And my head is a hellscape of weird things that happen all the time. One of the things that I have in my head at all times is uh, a question that runs through it, which is, you know, if I'm wrong, what does that say about me? And that keeps me in check from, in a sense, thinking far too highly of myself or believing that I'm right about a situation where I could be devastatingly wrong. And that question plays through my, my mind. And uh, I learned that question because I was getting this kind of early feedback and I saw the potential and I I came across it and it went into my toolbox and it kept spurring me forward as a sort of like, I know more is out there and it's worth chasing it. What are some resources he recommends to retrospective facilitators? The one I would recommend to anyone first and foremost is Agile Retrospectives by uh, Diana Larson and Esther Derby. I'd say if you've already read that book, I think one that um, 
is a, another really great one is um, Collaboration Explained by Gene Tabaka, which is not about retrospectives, but it's just, it's this really great, pretty short guide on facilitating collaborative meetings. And it covers, uh, certainly a, a good chunk of it overlaps nicely with the Agile Retrospectives book, but it dives deeper into just what is facilitation and how do you actually do this? So I found that to be very, very helpful. I'd say after the retro Agile Retrospectives book, there's a website called Retromat, which will randomly generate a retrospective for you. It's great for expanding your awareness of various activities and challenging you into how you can incorporate various activities and how you would do all this stuff. I would not recommend to anyone actually to run a randomly generated retrospective, but it's still really cool. We are almost at the end of the show, and it's time to ask the same three questions we ask to all our guests. Ryan, what is your favorite retrospective activity and a little story about it? I'll give you three activities that I tend to converge on quite regularly, and I'll give you a story for at least one of them. So the three I converge on quite a bit, ironically, is mad, sad, glad. I find a lot of teams I work with, even though they say they don't like talking about emotions or feelings, generally have never, never tried. And that, that one activity tends to, I think, get back to the roots of what it means to work together, uh, or it has that potential, I should say. And once teams have that kind of moment where they begin to see how they relate to one another, it becomes, that's the most common activity that forms a heartbeat retrospective for the teams I work with. That's, that's one of the core activities for most of the teams. And I gave you a story about the worst one I ever did with that one, but uh, it's probably not what you were looking for. I'd say another, another classic one is um, <clears throat> the sailboat exercise, which is from, I think, Gene Tabaka. Um, and I do, I do a pretty simple one I think there's one that's based on four quadrants, which I don't usually use. The one I use is just a sailboat with water and an anchor beneath. And you just ask the question, what are the things pushing us forward? And what are the things beneath the sea holding us back? And we just list them all, uh, which is which is a lighter variation of like a force field analysis. But it begins to to open the door of like what's really causing the reality that we're experiencing, which I think is it helps grease the wheels of that sort of generate insight stage. So that's one I lean on quite a bit as well. And then the last one would be mind mapping. The center object of the mind map will be whatever the theme or the topic is. And then I open it up immediately and say, anything that comes to mind about that, draw off of it. And if there's something related to that, draw off of that. But I, I try to have them do it as a group. And that's the main piece that I try to do is it's a group activity because then they're they're building meaning off of everyone else's meaning. And sometimes like you can have them do it silently, which is even more insane because then they have to create meaning from nothing, just what they see. And so they're building this really rich meaning without a word spoken. And then when you debrief on it, it's just this sort of unveiling of this stuff that had happened in five minutes and it's can be pretty cool. Typically, I will debrief after any activity that took more than, well, I'd say any activity that was meant to be divergent. The debriefing for me typically happens as generating insights. I'd say if I plan another activity that's going to be kind of meaty and potentially create a lot of meaning, then I'll debrief as a part of that as well. Ryan, what is one book that you're reading right now? I'm actually really bad about this, but I bounce between books more than I should. So one book that I know I just started was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was also bouncing between that and um, 
thinking fast and thinking slow, which is, I think people should read it, but holy crap, does that just ruin my mind? Um, I recently reread The Martian by Andy Weir. Ryan, what is your favorite dish? My favorite dish? Um, I actually recently switched to being vegan, so everything I eat is completely different than what I'm used to. I'd say the thing that I've been making that's been tacos that are just full of <laughs> veggies, which sounds totally boring, but um, you can add a lot of seasoning and spice and it's pretty good. Uh, if I were to say beyond my current diet stuff, my favorite dish is probably going to, you know, a really well grilled steak is hard to pass up. Pizza will always have a special place in my heart. As a, as a small aside, uh, a few months ago, well, actually a month ago, I tried out for MasterChef. I did, I did not make it. <laughs> Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag ThisIsRetrospectiveFacilitation or leave us a comment on ThisIsRetrospectiveFacilitation.com You can connect with Ryan on Twitter at RecursiveFaults. Norm Kurt, known as the father of retrospectives and author of the book Project Retrospectives, suffered a disabling brain injury in a car accident 20 years ago. Visit thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash helpnorm for details and a link on how to contribute to his fund. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.